Hello there everyone and welcome to another episode of the Long Live Rock and Roll podcast. Uh, it's usually on my right, but today's on my left. It's my co-host Philippe Amram. How are you doing, man? Hello everyone. Yeah, I'm doing fine, man. Good, good. Yeah. yeah, as you can see, if you're watching on the video, we're at another gig. So uh, yesterday, our last episode on Credence, we did in our hotel room after a show. Now we're actually at a gig. We've just come off stage. That's why we're all sweaty again. Um, and we did a good, good show, wasn't it? It was a good gig. Big man. stage, massive audience. Yeah. yeah, we got great sound. Uh, it was completely packed. It's really good to be back uh, yeah. playing festival gigs. Yeah, we love them. And the audience loved it as well, which is so yeah. important because they've been without gigs for so long that... You know, so nice to have everyone back for a change, isn't it? Anyway, would you like to uh, do the ceremonial? We have, we have a little disclaimer. We couldn't find a can of beer, so Felipe had to pop this open, but he's going to do the... I'm going to do the can of lemonade today. So just imagine, here we go. Oh, we failed. Let's do it again. Yeah. There you Ooh. go. <laughs> the episode has begun. <laughs> um, so this episode, we are going to talk about an album, and the album is Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, which is, well amongst one of the most famous albums ever. And one of the best-selling albums of all time as well, which is, can be unusual for a rock band, isn't it? To, to have an album like that, especially Pink Floyd, because what they used to do before The Dark Side of the Moon was far from whatever can be considered commercial music. I think it's unusual for a prog rock album. Uh, you know, rock, I, I hear what you're saying, but there is commercial rock out there. But for an album that's so progressive and was so different for its time, um, that's why I kind of can't understand why it's sold so much. Well, I think we've got to consider, and um, I might disagree with you there, okay. I don't think Pink Floyd's a prog band. Don't you? Yeah, if you compare them to uh, all the bands from the same era, like Yes, like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, um, you know, the you know, Gentle Giant or the proper prog band is all about um, extremely virtuoso musicians, you know, and um, and loads of notes and influence of classical music and very long pieces. What you have with Pink Floyd, some of the songs are long and you have, you know, a whole story, you know, start of keyboards and then the drums and the bass join the band or whatever. But it's not, in my opinion, it's not prog rock, you know. It's somehow... You can call it, I've heard someone call it space rock or something like that. It's about the technology, it's about the sounds, it's about the ambience, but not as much about, you know, playing too many notes or, or having very complex music structures, which you're going to find in every single prog band, but not with Pink Floyd. Do you think Pink Floyd, especially with this album, bridged the gap between progressive and rock? This is where it moulded and met in the middle. I would say so. Yeah. Because the, the one thing about this album, Dark Side of the Moon, is that, in fact, it's actually... Um, the, the people cited this as the first time that a band made accessible progressive music. Which yeah. I think is fair to say, isn't it? Because they actually, you know, there's several songs on there, which the, the, a lot of them are quite short as well, these songs. Not, not incredibly short, they're still four or five minutes, but the bands you're talking about, you know, think about how many Yes and Genesis songs are like... 12, 13 minutes long. You know, this album kept the songs in more of a rock format, didn't it? Then that's a really interesting topic because I think uh, you managed to sum it up because for, for me, The Dark Side of the Moon, and I think for Roger Waters as well, is one long song. Yeah. If you consider through that perspective, it's actually a 40, you know, 4, 45 minute song. But they were so clever 
which are turning to different parts. It's like a, a, a movie divided in different chapters or yeah. a book. So uh, you see when you go back to breathe at the end of time, so the same chord, same melody, uh, they're going back to the very first song of the album. But if you consider the whole album as one long piece, then you're just going back to the first chapter. Yeah. It, and I think what they did that was that made it commercially viable was to divide that one long piece into a smaller, uh, uh, you know, bite size, more digestible, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more digestible. Exactly. So, so you, if you isolate one track like "Time Like Money," then everyone can listen to that and enjoy it. And most people who were not familiar with the album or not familiar with Pink Floyd, they know "Time," they know "Money," they know probably "Breathe." So. They think they are isolated tracks. They don't perceive it as as, as part of a whole. And yeah. I think that is so clever. Um, it's a crucial element about the album that they intentionally made it commercial. That's the thing that some people don't know. Uh, Roger Waters was under pressure by the label to actually do something that you know could make it to the charts. Because yeah. if you think about everything they've done with Sid Barrett before Waters took control was very experimental. Yeah. So they were one of the greatest bands in the world, but still not commercial commercial enough yeah. to make to, you know to break America and and, and exactly. turn them into a very profitable organization. Yeah. Just so you know guys, if you're hearing any doors closing or guitars being strummed, we are still at the gig. We're in the green room. Uh, we got I managed to get a room just for us, but we're right next to where all the other bands are hanging out. So if you hear if you hear rock and roll sounding people, then that's what we are. We're, we're surrounded by rock and roll bands this, today, aren't we? This is reality TV or reality radio, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Exactly. We're not faking it. We're yeah. in the middle of a music festival here. Um, so, I mean, yeah. let's, I'll give you some, not facts, but uh, some details about the album. So, as you know, it's Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, released on the 1st of March, 1973, but recorded from June to January, 1972 to 1973. Um, but they did multiple stints there. And what's really interesting about the album is that they played most of the songs that are on the album on the tour in 1971 before to the audiences. Recording. Yeah, before recording it. And the thing is, is, I mean, we'll get into it when we go song by song, but a lot of it stayed the same. You know, I've heard early versions of Time and Breathe, and they're quite similar, but then On the Run has completely changed. But then a lot of that is to do with the technology that was around at that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Because yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, so it was produced by Pink Floyd themselves, uh, but the engineer was a guy called Alan Parsons. Um, Alan, yes, yeah, he, he had a lot. He, he was, to put it this way, the album would not have been the same without him. Uh, he had such a huge impact on it, not musically, but technologically. It's, um, you, you can't, yeah. Um, he had a huge input into the technological aspects of the album. And certain things would not have happened without him being in the studio at that time. Yeah, exactly. Like editing tapes and cutting tapes and, and, and piecing the samples. You know, the, you know the, the, all those noises you have uh, before time, before money, before all those songs. He used that as an introduction by, you know, cutting tapes and editing yeah. stuff that they had loads of, uh, of uh, sounds available there at the studio. It was recorded in Abbey Road, wasn't it? Yeah. And Alan Parsons was clever. And he, I, I think there's a, there's a human element that's a big part of it. He could have been a producer kind of thing, but I think he was really young at the time. Also, he knew that he shouldn't interfere much with uh, Gilmore and Waters' vision for the album. So all he managed, all he tried to do was to get their ideas 
into the record yeah. with you know proper technological knowledge because he knew what he was doing. Uh, whilst you think about Waters and Gilmore, the, although they know about the gear, they're not producers in the sense of uh, doing the sound engineering part of an album. Uh, that was up to Alan Parsons to capture what was in their minds and, and actually make it real. Yeah. And I think he did it in a perfect way. I think uh, it's one of the best sounding albums of all time. Yeah. You can compare yeah. The Dark Side of the Moon to any modern album and nothing is missing. You know, the drum sounds, the keyboards, the, the guitars, and the right amount of reverb and ambience that's something apparently Gilmore and Waters clashed for ages mm-hmm. like I want more there's more of that no it's too echoey it's not oh it's not too much echoey you want more there's more of that Rogers and wanted it rawer I think Gilmore so wanted yeah it more, yes more echoey and atmospheric exactly I think that the result of that clash between them plus Alan Parsons uh, knowledge of the gear and, and the room is what made the album sound so good so I think that one of the reasons for being uh, actually there's many reasons for the album to be such a bestseller like that because you have great sound you have great musicianship they were playing at the top of their games at the time Yeah, and everyone leaves a space to the other one so no one is overplaying and you, you get great guitar solos the lyrics and the melodies are amazing and especially Gilmore and Richard Wright are singing so well and harmonizing beautifully throughout yeah. the whole album so so many elements that make the album great you know? well there's a lot to talk about with this album because th- th- there's several really important aspects of it that was uh, I suppose fresh in the world of rock and roll um, first of all there was the recording next was the lyrical content um, I suppose the overall feel of the album, which we discussed, you know, shorter songs. Yes, it's one long, you, you could say it's one long piece, but let's talk about the recording first because the amount of innovations in that, that, that came from that album, the stuff they did, which is so unique and so fresh at the time. Um, for example, it was the, one of the first, I mean, I know the Beatles used it. No, was it the Beatles? Who was it? I can't remember. But... Um, this album was one of the first albums recorded where they used a 16-track, which allowed them so many more inputs to get so many different more instruments. And like you said about Gilmore and Wright harmonizing, yeah. Gilmore's harmonizing with himself in several of the tracks. Yeah. Um, he's singing over himself, putting a harmony where in another album they wouldn't have been able to because the, the, the system wouldn't have been able to take it. It would have only been a four-track or an eight-track. But the fact that they have all these extra stuff means that they were able to add so many more layers, and you can hear that on the album. The layers on the album are just, they, they seem infinite, don't they? They've done a great job with it. Well, they did. I mean, uh, um, you can hear all those layers of vocals and instruments, and they were well balanced in the mix. And again, there's, there's no overplaying and there's no over layering. Yeah. There's not too many, there's not like, there's just enough layers of vocals and guitars and everything else uh, to make it sound interesting. You have some good uh, um, female back and vocalists in the album as well, and they just sound amazing. Yeah, they do, they it's, do. If you listen to, to the vocal harmonies, it's just perfect. And they were kind of going that way. Uh, uh, they, they had that idea of adding the female vocals, and they just managed to, to have this, the, the right amount of it. Um, and yeah, again, you have the solos, you have everything else. But you mentioned the lyrics. I want to say something about it because um, we talked the other day about John Fogerty and about he, the way he talks about his own personal experiences. Waters had a different idea in mind, which is he wanted to talk about everyone. 
Yeah. So if I'm not wrong, the word that that happens uh, uh, that they appears mostly in, in in the lyrics is you. Oh, really? It's all the time saying you, you, you. Oh, it's wow. like pointing a finger, like I'm talking to you. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think the concept for the lyrics, I, I, I think the whole idea of the lyrics came before the instruments, before everything else. Yeah. So it's, again, that's an unusual way to do a prog album if you yeah. consider it like prog, because prog is more about the instruments. Uh, sometimes there's loads of bands that would recognize that their lyrics don't say much. It's just about how they play and Waters had the idea since he worked on Echoes because the lyrics of Echoes is about someone um, you know crossing paths with a stranger yeah. and recognizing himself in that stranger so he actually said he saw two people like cross, crossing their paths uh, in front of him out of his window and they said what if those those two people stopped and talked to each other how much do they have in common so he wanted to write not only that song Echoes but a whole album about the human experience about what do we have in common and why are we so alienated why are we so apart from each other if we have so much in common so very clever uh, choices uh, 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 choices about lyrics because you think about how he goes straight to the point with the song titles. Yeah. As yeah. in them. Time. Time. Breathe. Breathe. Yeah. Money. Well, Especially time and money. Just just want to say this, because time and money are two subjects that every single human being on earth has to have a relation with. Yeah. We we can't deny the importance of time and money. So exactly. he was he was literally saying, what's the song about? Money. I'm going to talk about yeah. it. And what's the name of the song? Money. Uh, <laughs> what else do you need to worry about in life? Time. Yeah. What's the name of the song? Time. So that doesn't doesn't it make it commercially viable? Well, does every human have to do all their life? Breathe. <laughs> Breathe. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because you're saying that, which is absolutely true. And I suppose from a philosophical standpoint, looking and like you know what you said that that lyric was so important. Uh, the one from Echoes. Yeah. Strangers passing in the streets by chance, two separate glances meet. I am you, and what I see is me. Lovely lyric, but you're right. That goes deep into the human soul. It's talking yeah. about how, on what level do we connect as humans? He did this on Dark Side of the Moon, but pushed it a lot further. He talks about time, about death, about mental health, about greed, about conflict. Some of that, a lot of the mental health aspect, it came from Sid Barrett. Because Sid Barrett had a mental breakdown, didn't he? Yeah. Um, what? It was before Medal. Because Medal was album, but without Sid Barrett, wasn't it? The yeah, first he only one? recorded the first one actually. Uh, oh, really? Sid recorded the uh, um, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and then he recorded one song in the second album, which is um, a Source of All Secrets. Oh, so he only that. did one song. So you can consider he's been part of two albums. Yeah. yeah. So he's not on Medal. He's not on. But he had a breakdown, and it really yeah. affected the band. And this is a part of what. Waters was writing about only not the whole album's about Sid's breakdown, but uh, an aspect of it was. Yeah, because he, he, he Sid disconnected himself from the band and from the world. Yeah, and I think if Waters was trying to talk about elements that connect human beings, he, he obviously was missing his friend, you know, and and he was scared because it was like I'm now in charge because no one else in the band can write lyrics, or if they do, they don't do it as often as I do, and. Um, the whole commercial pressure was over him. The record label wanted a hit. And they said, well, who's in charge now? Waters took control. He was like, I'm in charge. I yeah. need to write the hit. And money was so uh, um, you know, sarcastic, let's put it like that. And if you think about Echoes, it's, as I said, it's philosophic, it's poetic. 
But money is more like, okay, they want to hit. I'm yeah. going to write a song in, in, in 7-8 or 7-4 if you, if you prefer. Um, and so instead of counting four beats, you count seven beats. It's not, it's not common in pop music. Yeah. It's not commercial. So he did that. And it's all based on a bluesy bass line in, in, as a shuffle, which is not as popular yeah. as well. And the lyrics are criticizing greed and capitalism. How can you make a commercial song criticizing money? Or not money itself, but the relation people have with money. How incredible is that? Do you think the, him writing it in 7-4 is putting two fingers up at, at, the, at the pop industry? Totally, yeah. Like, here's your pop song. And in case single. you're not in the UK, two fingers yeah. is like the middle finger. <laughs> so for anyone who's for anyone who doesn't play an instrument or read music, playing in seven four. So playing in four four is counting four beats in a bar. Ninety nine point nine percent of pop music is in four four, and it's one two three four one two three four. And it's nice because it's an even number. It comes round again. You often play four bar phrases or eight bar phrases, and you can repeat them. But playing in seven, it's one two three four five six seven one. And so because you've got that extra beat, which makes it an odd number, it throws you off. It um, does. And that's but it, fantastic. But it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. because the melody is so well. Oh, the way they do it in money. Yeah, is you don't feel. You don't feel the seven. Yeah. Just the bum ba ba dum bum 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 ba. That's the seven, and then it comes around and repeats again. And it's it's so clever, and he did that intentionally. He was I want something seven, yeah. And uh, um, and that's I think the the two most important songs. We're not talking about the whole album, but the two most important songs are money and time Mm. because they were in the charts. If I'm not wrong, for twenty years, it's like. Yeah. If you have any statistics there, I do. The time because it's, it, actually, it's all mental. I mean, well, the thing is, is the statistic I have, it's not actually to do with money. You, you might be right, but the thing I have is that, um, let me see it. So, Dark Side of the Moon, I know we're kind of going back and forth, um, but just this little fact is it remained in the Billboard 200, which is a chart of 200 albums. The, and you know how popular they are and how they're being bought. It remained in that in that chart, so it was one of the two hundred most popular and most bought albums for nine hundred and thirty-seven weeks, wow. which is just under eighteen years. That is so. It kept selling at a consistent rate to be considered in the top two hundred albums in the world for eighteen years. That is like unheard of. That's that's yeah. phenomenal. That that's crazy, isn't it? Again, that, that means Waters actually achieved what he wanted. He wanted to communicate with literally everyone. And uh, that, yeah. that, that album went, went way beyond uh, um, Pink Floyd's audience. You know? Well, the, the, thing I wrote, the thing I read, and so many people and critics said that the lyrical content and themes that other bands were doing at the time were nothing like this. And the content of this album really touched and resonated with a lot of people. Um, it was a massive artistic statement to say, we're going to make an album that is dark. And do you know what I think? Um, it's dark. It is. And you, but do you know what I think really lends itself? And again, there's so many aspects on this album that if a little bit is removed, it's not the same album. And for me, one, one aspect of the album is the people talking. I know we've discussed doesn't this. So that, what, doesn't that make it even yeah. more human? What it is, what happened is um, Roger Waters wrote questions on cue cards. So he had just a bunch of cards and he wrote questions on them that started off with, what is your favourite colour? Um, and then they kind of got a bit more philosophical and he went, what is your favourite colour? 
Is there a dark side of the moon? Have you ever been violent? And then the one after that question, were you in the right of being violent? And questions that made people themselves question, well, well, here's the last time I was violent. Was I right to do it? And the responses they got were fantastic. Um, one of the guys, I don't know actually, is, it, is this one of the questions in the segments? No, it's not, so I can ask you. Do you know um, the name of the guy who goes, I'm not frightened of dying? I love that. I don't know. So he's called Jerry O'Driscoll and he was the doorman at Abbey Road Studios. Yes, I, I knew he was a doorman. And it was like such a random thing, isn't it? I, I want to pick everyone who is around yeah. and give them this piece of paper. So they use the, the crew, the crew, the, the, the studio technicians at Abbey Road, people loading in the gear. As we just said, the doorman from Abbey Road, he just asked everyone, sat them in a booth in the recording studio and said, I'm not going to interview you, just read the cards and answer the questions into the mic. And just like a good movie, when right at the end of the movie you have an idea for a scene that's going to change the whole story, and it just, oh, we need to shoot that scene and edit it in, into the movie, uh, that's what they did with those voices, because Waters was like, they were right at the end of the recording process, and, it, and Waters wasn't happy. It was like, something is missing, it's not human enough. We need, we need, we don't need only people singing, we need people talking. Yeah. And for instance, that thing is, the question was, are you afraid of dying? So you got yeah. that beautiful line. I'm not frightened of dying, any time will do. <laughs> yeah, and what, what does it say after that? Um, any time I do, I don't mind. No, yeah. Yeah, whatever, so it's, it's just beautiful. And the thing is, you get the answers without the questions. Yeah. That's why it sounds like, what they talk, what, what are they going on about? And one of the questions, if I'm not wrong, was uh, what is the dark side of the moon all about? Because people didn't know what the album was all about. And although it's, as we said, such a simple you know, concept, we want to talk to the elements that everyone has to relate to. We're going to talk about the things that are common between all human beings and try to question why they live uh, so apart. Uh, but no one apparently not even the band could grasp the idea so he asked that question as, as you know what was the album all about and someone actually instead of talking about the album talked about the dark side of the moon itself like yeah. well if there's no dark, dark side of the moon really as a matter of fact it's all dark it's that's all dark right, yeah. so that's at the end of it and how does it i mean that's the interesting thing if you're writing lyrics if writing guitar solos you can have total creative control over that and you can uh, direct your ideas to, to your final destination musically. But when you're asking someone to speak to a microphone, they're not musicians, they're not artists, they're just common people talking to a microphone. How can you know what's going to come out of it? Yeah. That makes the album such, like, much more um, accessible for yeah, human. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, before we go sort of and talk track by track, I thought we'll do a little segment. Um, and this, uh, we don't have a name for this segment, it's just called, uh, well, I'll introduce it. This is The Quiz. So I thought I'd just ask you some questions. So I did it. I did actually. My first question was the doorman. So I got that wrong. But I can. I can think of another question. So you got to keep track of your score. All right. Um, here's the thing. Uh, this is not planned, so I don't know the questions. Lars assumes I know everything about Pink Floyd, which I don't. Um, 
I know a lot. He, he was in a Pink Floyd tribute band. He has to know. I was in every single Treatment Man he can possibly make. Every show I'm saying, you know, I've played them Creed and yeah. Treatment Man. I've played in Deep Purple, whatever. Um, so, um, yeah, let's see if you guys can guess the answers before I can guess them. Why not? Go for it. Yeah, yeah keep your score at home if yeah, you're listening. Yeah, keep your score. I think I'm going to get zero. I, I'm not, no, I don't know. No, you right. And right. I've gone for obscure ones because there's right. facts about Dark Side of the Moon that everyone knows. Right, question one. Uh, this isn't written down, so I already asked question one about Jerry O'Driscoll, so I'm just going to make this up in my head. Um, which famous musician was asked to read the cue cards, but his answers were not used because he was purposely trying to be too funny? I know. That was Paul McCartney. That's true, He yeah. was recording, uh, um, probably with Wings, uh, or his yeah. solo album, at, at Abbey Road, and Waters wanted him to come along. They knew each other, but... He said Paul didn't want, probably didn't want his voice in the album, so it just was really evasive. And well, Roger Waters said he, was try, he tried to be too funny. Yeah. Um, but actually, someone from Wings is on the album uh, oh, talking. Right. Yeah, I can't remember who it was. Excellent, well done. One out of one. Uh, number two, which Beatles song can be heard somewhere on the record? And if you know it, where? I thought there was a myth. No, it's is true. It's there. Really? Yeah. Can you hear it? Because are they. Uh, were they playing? Uh, was someone playing it from a record player or something? Um, I don't know that. That's I just a, know that a section of a Beatles song can be heard somewhere. You don't know if it's intentional either. I have no idea. I'm going to guess. Can I just guess? Yeah. Um, she said. She said. No. <laughs> just the answer running. is "Ticket to Ride," and it can be heard. I think it's the riff. Dun, 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 dun. I think mm. that can be heard in the dying moments of Eclipse. Right Very at the far end. in the back, yeah. Right at the end. Wow. Right. What video game character was going to be on the front cover? Wow. Man. Those questions are hard. Can you guys guess it? I have no idea. Video game character? Yeah. Gosh. Well, at that time, how, how popular were video games? Um, I'm just going to guess again. Super Mario. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. Although you're, I mean, think about. There's nothing no. to do with the dark How side. How weird of the that look, anyway? <laughs> think about it though. Think. Um... <laughs> Can you imagine Super Mario on the front of a Pink Floyd album cover? <laughs> yeah, playing a bass guitar. So. Yeah. Um... We've discussed this video game character before when we were touring in Brazil. We watched a video about this video. Yeah, that was long ago, I don't remember. Okay, well, on the front cover was going to be the Silver Surfer. Wow. Yeah. I thought of it because um, Joe Satriani did that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe he did it. Maybe he thought, maybe he thought he hadn't done it. I'll do it. (laughs) Uh, Excellent. So, next question, and this is one you'll like. Mm. After the release of Dark Side of the Moon, how much money did Pink Floyd contribute to the filming of Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Is it A, 10%, B, 20%, or C, 50%? I'm going to have to guess again. I told you I'm terrible with the questions today. Um, I'll, I'll go for 10%. 10%. No, the answer is 20%. Well, that's quite a lot. So in the studio, they actually had a lot of downtime where Roger Waters, because it was Abbey Road, Roger Waters would go and watch Arsenal play 
he'd either go to their stadium to watch them play or he'd go and find a pub and watch the game on well actually they, did they do that in the 70s? Did they have football on TVs? I think they did. Anyway, sure, yeah. Roger Waters used to go and watch Arsenal and the other band, the other band members used to sit and watch Monty Python's Flying Circus. And so when they heard that Monty Python were filming a movie called The Holy Grail, they contributed to the production costs. That's amazing. Um, so the production, the total amount for, uh, the budget for Holy Grail was about £500,000. And so Monty Python, um, Pink Floyd contributed about 20% of that. Think about one thing, though. They were paying you know, for one of the most expensive studios on earth. I don't yeah. know if it was that expensive at the time. But you are, you are at Abbey Road paying shitloads of money to be there recording. And you stop for an hour or whatever to watch <laughs> the fly circus. It's like, well, Monty Python's on TV. You've got to stop recording. Yeah. And they paid for this studio. It's like mental. They were rich, right. though, weren't they? All of them. Yeah. Um, and final question. Do you know what the album was going to be named? All right. Because there was another name. Actually, there was another band who released um, an album called... Wait, am I right? Yeah, and there was, there was a band who released an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, I see. But it failed and they flopped and they didn't even didn't get any recognition. But because of that, Pink Floyd had another name in mind before they were going to call the album. Was it Eclipse? Yes. Got well it. done. That well one done. I knew. Yes. Uh, two out of... Well done, bro. Two out of five. Oh, terrible. No. Um, let us know in the comments how many how many you guys got. Um, awesome. Right. Let's, let's just go through this. Let's talk about the songs because um, there's just so much to get into. Each song is just so different, isn't it? Yeah, I think, so I think much... we won't have time to talk about each song, I think, or maybe just a little bit of... Well, we just, yeah, we'll just flick through and talk about the best aspects. Um... Well, the, the album starts with Speak To Me. Um, Which is credited to Nick Mason, but it's, yes, just, yes. it's just because I think they wanted him to have some you know, yeah. songwriting credits, and they got that song, which is, uh, it's a bunch of noises, isn't it? Well, the thing Beyond that they might that have, to... the reason he might have got a credit is because that heartbeat is done by a bass drum. They treated it. it, they put a shitload of stuff inside. I mean, you know more about drums than me, but I can just imagine they packed me out with towels and blankets and just a boom, boom, boom like yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's very muffled. Um, the, uh, yeah, so there's, the, this is where we first, right from the off, this is where we see the first, uh, or hear the first segment of um, the road crew being interviewed. We hear, you know, I've always been mad, and then they loop that guy's laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so again, that's, that's one important element that goes throughout the whole album, the samples and the, the, those yes. ideas of voices, noises. That's one of the key elements of Dark Side of the Moon that has never been done before uh, to that level, yeah. as far as we're concerned. The looping. And uh, there's loads of it, and it, it does connect the songs and make it sound like that one long piece, yeah. as I, as I yeah, said I before. Um, well, Roger Waters described Speak To Me as an overture to the album. Um, do you not know the choice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, sorry, don't want to patronise you. It's, um, oh, he's patronising me now because he's it's, teaching it's just, me. Listen, you English know, is not even English, is it? Your English is fantastic, but it's not your first language. And <laughs> overture is not English. Obscure word, yeah. What is it, Latin? <laughs> it's Latin based. Oh, probably, yeah. Well, so, if it's not, we're just going to yeah. pretend it is. <laughs> so, um, French, he it? described <laughs> Speak to Me. <laughs> do you know what it probably is? Um, as the overture to the album, so the introduction. And then it takes us to Breathe uh, in the Air. Um, it's just a gorgeous song, that one, isn't it? It is, and it's simple, you know, two chords. An interesting thing about that song, as far as I know, Waters 
came up with the whole idea, you know, the whole philosophical elements about the album and explained it to the band and everyone was like, okay, cool. Like, they didn't care much they, about the lyrics. They, they just like, jammed from E to A. <laughs> yeah, but they, they were like, oh, okay, um, yeah, good idea, you know, human beings, whatever, you know, human mind and yeah. uh, philosophy. But in terms of music, what have you got? What this? It was like, well, I got this two chords. Yeah. I said, really? I mean, you just talked about whole album, you got two chords. Is that E minor and A minor yeah. seven? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, and then it's like, is that really? So they jammed through those chords for hours. Like, yeah. all right, we're not going anywhere. And then that's when you have uh, the importance of the other band members. And Richard Wright came with a chord. He, according to himself, he stole from a Miles Davis song. Yes. And it's a jazz chord full of, you know, extensions and, and stuff. We're not going to get into the, 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 the music theory of it, but he just played that, that chord, which leads perfectly into the next session. Does, doesn't that one chord give the song its personality? It, it's, it's, because it's dark. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's disturbing, yeah, you know? Is, yeah. You're coming from a, such a simple chord progression, and then you, have, you get into that thing, wow, then you go to the next section of the song of that chord, uh, happens again, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it's just brilliant. And then, uh, just saying one thing that is not only about the song, but about the album. You have um, each member contributing musically to, to a very high level, and that has never happened again with Pink Floyd. Waters took control more and more, and it ended up being all about him and the numerous guitar solos. But although he's the only songwriter in the album, the contribution of every single member in that album Musically. Is musically is so important and so unique that that album could not have been made by any other four people in the world. Yeah. And I, yeah. As soon as we you know go through the songs, I might say a couple of things about that. But yeah, yeah let's move on. Excellent. After that, we get on the run, which is a really odd tune because it doesn't fit in with the rock idea and it doesn't fit in with the prog idea it's it's an electro tune you know i've got in my notes i said is this the first example of drum and bass music well it could be because think about it's like the hi-hats and then that thing over and over and over if not drum and bass it's certainly electronic music sample based music like some elements you have in, in techno music, yep. um, electronic dance music, uh, hip-hop and rap, some of those elements were there. Yeah. And initially it would be a jam of guitars. It, it would was, be like yeah. layers and layers of electric guitars. And then at the very last minute they recorded a, pro- a progression of notes on the keyboard and they, you know, they just managed to speed it up. Well, it's a sequencer. And what they did yeah. is they put in the notes. So you simply you just put in do-do-do, like do-do-do-do-do. And then you also, you, you mess about with the oscillator and all the knobs and everything. And I remember them saying, Roger Walls was like, we just sat there and we twisted all the knobs. And it just takes it. And then you mess around with all the waves and the sign to give it the effects. It's so unique, isn't it? That song is played by the gear more than the band itself. Yeah, yeah. In it. Because what you have there is like, they recorded a few notes. And they didn't have to play them again. No, just yeah. looping and speeding them up and, you know, messing around. So great experimental track, which does relate to the beginnings of Pink Floyd, but it's so yeah. much more uh, um, unique because it's electronic. Well, what it was doing is it was... This was Pink Floyd's way of introducing the world to the technologies of the future. 
because yeah. no other bands had used the technology to this extent. I, I totally recommend people to watch Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii because oh, there's there's the dark side of the moon behind the scenes recording. Yes, yeah. I, is that only the special edition though, or is it everything? Man, I watched that on TV, recorded on VHS. <laughs> I don't remember. But anyway, yes, he's right. He's right because in between sections of the live performances of Pompeii, you see. Um, them in the studio recording stuff for Dark Side of the Moon. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and it's um, they do mention something about um, you, you. You need you know that guitar specific guitar sound to be Eric Clapton, and you need the keyboards to be Pink Floyd. Yeah, there's no Pink Floyd without that keyboard mm. sound and all the technology. Yeah. Well, On the Run was also the first tune that was using a lot of panning because you know if you put your headphones on. You hear the little go from your left, and then it comes all the way around the back of your head, then around to the right. That's just another great example of the innovations of the the, the technologies of their time and using it to their to, to the fullest effect. We're not just going to put this this music into the listener's head. We're going to give them a, I don't know what word to use a, a an interactive experience. That's proper surround sound experience, yeah. isn't it? Because we that that became quite a thing recently, but it was brand new at the time, isn't it? Well, I, Roger Waters said something about the, the fact they wanted really to utilize, or, or was it Alan Parsons? Alan Parsons or Roger Waters, maybe both, said that at the time they were aware that a lot of households were getting these new hi-fi systems. And technology in the home was becoming bigger and better. And so they wanted to utilize this and essentially make this the first surround sound hi-fi album. And they did it. Right. Yeah. That is really interesting. Anyway, um, so after On The Run, we have Time. It's just a great song, isn't it? I mean, don't you find that Time and Breathe, do you find them to be quite similar? I do. Especially the chorus melodies. They, because they are the same in it. I mean, they, they intentionally reused or recycled. Oh, really? The chords oh. and the ideas from breathe into time. Is the there a reason actual, for that? The actual the, the actual end of of time is breathe. It's like the is is it, it's it, it, in the the album says breathe is is like you're going back to the first song. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the end when one says home home again, that's breathe. You breathe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I that see, is yeah, the same. Yeah. That is the same thing. So they and that's something that most people. Um, they would, they would think, well, I think I've heard this before. How clever is that? Because we just listened to that album. So maybe don't, you got involved with the whole, you know, sequence of songs. They get to that point in the album and they're playing the beginning of the album again, but, but it's not, not more the same lyrics. Yeah. And you're kind of, wow, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And it makes you feel good immediately because yeah. it's familiar. It's not, you know. Home, home again. Home again. Yeah. Back to where you were, you know. And the lyrics um, are so good about it. Someone said that Waters was only 28 by the time, but he's written in the perspective of someone much older. Yeah. Reflecting back That's on true. his life. Yeah. You know? um, do you know, so Alan Parsons, he, I can't remember what he was doing. I think he was doing some soundscaping for a movie. And he went into this antique clock shop and he took all of these clocks into a recording room where he took his tape. Uh, his uh, tape recorder, and he would record each clock going off, um, whether it was like the alarm or whether it was the chiming uh, uh, the, on the hour, and he recorded all of them. Now, when you think of the music technologies we have today, um, if you had a clip of a of, of if you had a clip of if you had a clip of 
10 different clocks all going off at the same time using logic and all the all the uh, uh, systems we have today. You just line it up so they all go off at the same time. If one goes off earlier than the other, you move it along. I read that when they were doing time, they ha they spent hours... Trying to sync the clocks. Trying to play the tape. So, okay, a minute into this tape, a minute into clock one, it starts. But 30 seconds into clock two, it starts. A minute and 30 into clock three, it starts. So they had to hit play on one tape thing. Time 30 seconds. Okay, right, now we hit this one. Okay, that's right. Give it ten, four, three, two, one. Okay, let's do this one. And then they, they played around with that and they finally got it so that all the tapes lined up and the clocks all went off at the same time. But, imagine, but when you think about the effort you have to go to, but it's so important, the clocks going off in that song, not only because the, the song is called Time, but again, an interactive experience for the listener with clocks going off in their head. You don't expect that sort of noise is coming out of an album, do you? No, you expect no. music, you know, guitar chords and vocals and stuff, and then out of the blue you have that noisy, yeah. really loud It's disturbing. Clock. Every time I hear it, I kind of sit back and I'm like, whoa. Isn't it you know, I'm used to it. I know when it's coming, but... And when they play it live, they have to replicate that. They have yeah. to, you know, um, to, to have that some those samples. If they're not there, you can't play time. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And another important element of that is I was talking about how each musician actually contributed to the album and made it special. That's Nick Mason's song for me. It totally is. That's yeah. Nick Mason's because what he did there was the first like minute and a half. When you have that heartbeat, just like in the beginning, which is one thing that connects the whole album. It's in yeah. the first song, it's in time, and it's at the end of the album. And you have that thing going on, and a guitar, and a few guitar notes, very like, uh, there's loads of space between the guitar notes and keyboard. So you have that ambience, and Nick Mason just had this like brilliant idea of playing rotten toms, which are very specific, or it's like uh, orchestral toms, okay. if you want to call it which uh, you have just, it's not like a normal drum when you have a, a, a deep uh, piece of wood with two skins on each side. Yeah. Uh, you have just one skin and it's just a metallic structure. There's no bottom to it. There's no, it's not, so it's just like a metallic round structure with the skin. Yeah. So it has that very particular sound, which is, you know, again, it's disturbing. You know, the sound of it is disturbing. Mm. Uh, it's not... The pitch is not perfect, it, and that's Nick Mazur's contribution to the album because he plays an unusual instrument for a rock band with brilliant rhythmic ideas and so much space and dynamics. For those who don't know what, what dynamics means in music, it's like when you when you play with the levels, you go up and down. If you in listen terms of to, volume. Yeah, yeah, volume. So it plays really quiet and then loud and then more notes and then fewer notes and then it, it's just... So clever, and it's it funny. makes the song. And there's a drum fill, boom, 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 ba, 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 into yeah. the vocals. So you have all that minute and a half of nothing going on, but that percussion sound. And then you have a powerful drum fill that leads into the vocals, and you have a funky drum beat for pretty much the first time in Pink Floyd since Echoes. Yeah, 
so it's totally. I mean, I think Nick Mays have made that song what it is. Do you remember when? We, so we went to go and see Roger Waters a few years ago, didn't we, yeah. at Hyde Park? And the one thing we came out of it saying, and actually, you mentioned this at the start of the episode, a really important thing about Dark Side of the Moon is the amount of space the yeah. instruments leave each other. Yeah. Um, the most important phrase I've heard as a bass player, and the one that I consider every time I play a gig, every time I'm recording a bass line, every time I'm thinking about music. The quote that resonates with me is, it's not, about the sp- it's not about the notes you play, it's about the space you leave, which I think is perfect for this album because yeah. it is the space that's left that, that makes the album. And when we went to see Roger Waters at Hyde Park, it was a fantastic, fantastic gig. Brilliant but do you band. remember, yeah. we, the one thing we said is, the drummer's overplaying. Well, yeah, and he did we're, quite we're too of... many fills, too, too many notes in his fills. So th- th- there you go, you get like fantastic musicians playing those things. But then, why is Nick Mason Nick Mason? Yeah, it's not a criticism of the drummer, he yeah. was brilliant. It's brilliant. just compared to Nick Mason. When you listen back to the album, you think, wow, that, that's how, you know, that, that's how uh, uh, incredible yeah, Pink Floyd was. is. Why, yeah. why is Pink Floyd that good? Because only those four guys could make those songs yeah. sound like they are. You can see any exactly. other band, great musicians playing it, uh, tribute bands, and yeah, they're good, but you can't replace those guys. You can't replace Nick Mays. He's still one of my favorite drums of yeah, all time. Of Love him. And it's a full if you're on. listening to this, Nick, he's not going to be listening to this. Uh, yeah, I want to meet you and have a beer with you, mate. And say thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the next song after time is Great Gig in the Sky, which is... Um, so unusual, isn't it? It's a very different kind of song. It's piano-based. I know that Rick, uh, Richard Wright was talking about how he just sat at the piano and came up with those chords, and they're just beautiful, aren't they? That, that was meant to be an instrumental song first. And, yeah, it's totally piano-based. Again, then we get into the point, now we're coming from Nick Mason to Richard Wright, so how important it was for that song. Yeah. You couldn't have that song. So although people claim, yeah, it's, it's mainly Roger Waters' album, I totally disagree. Yeah, what we said is, yeah, everyone had their musical input. Exactly, um, it's Roger Waters' um, script. Yeah, yeah, but he didn't act in all the scenes. So the vocalist was a lady called Claire Torrey. Um, it's funny, she actually she declined to come on the first day they invited her because she had tickets to go and see Chuck Berry at the Hammersmith Apollo. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> That's a good excuse. Yeah, it is, yeah. Especially um, when Pink Floyd wasn't yeah. Pink Floyd. <laughs> but she, she came She came the week later and she did it. And Roger just said to her, go in, do your thing. We want this, we want that. And she went in and he, the, the interesting thing is he told her about the themes of the album. And so she went in then thinking, greed, conflict, time, death, mental health, humans, you know, stuff like that. And she went in there and she came out of the studio and she said... I'm so sorry, that, that was awful. And they said, nope, you nailed it. Go and do a few more like that and we'll piece it together. Um, and it really is stunning, isn't it? That vocal performance is, is a landmark in, in rock vocal performances, isn't it? Everyone knows Great Gig in the Sky for the vocals. What did we say on the very first uh, episode of this podcast? Rock and roll is music freedom. Yeah. But the problem about freedom is a lot of people don't know what to do with it. So basically, when a band hires a session musician, freelance musician, like they hired her, they they just give them a script. Look, I want you to come down and you're going to do this. Here's the notation, sing it just like the notation. Exactly. Maybe you can have a little bit of input. But what they said to her was like, go there and do your thing. There's no lyrics. It's an instrumental song. Just go there and shout in the microphone. Just, you know, 
whatever. How can you be so sure about which notes you want to sing when there's no there's no prescription? You know, yeah. what are you gonna do? What kind of vocal line uh, is she gonna come up with? And she was brilliant. Mm. And she ended up a few years later getting uh, songwriting credits, which is totally well deserved. Mm. You can't have that song without her vocals yeah. on it. And well, that's she, the main melody of the song in the end. She was paid thirty pounds for the session, which back then, so if that was nowadays accounting for inflation, it means she would have been paid four hundred quid for the session, which is a normal session yeah. fee. It's like a musician so getting paid. More. To, yeah, but it's it's a musician getting paid to do a job. She exactly. went there, did the job, and then I think they never gave her the album. She saw it in a music shop and she bought it somewhere. Like yeah, and brilliant, brilliant. And, and the start of that song, we have the famous "I'm not frightened of dying." Anytime we do. Doesn't bother me. Is yeah, this I, mean, says, I don't mind. I don't mind. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, after that comes. I mean, we've already spoken about money. Um, we don't really yeah. need to talk about. Can it skip that well, one. One quick thing it. is that money was actually Roger Waters was inspired by Booker T, who did the song Green Onions, which is a very kind of old soul. Um, well, Booker T played it was the Stats, wasn't he, in uh, Nashville? So um, I think you can hear the influence on there, especially with the keyboard. Uh, like the organ sound that Richard Wright gets. But yeah, again, yeah. it's a bit funky in it comparing to... It is, yeah. Well, my notes are more funky. Funky. So another, another aspect, you know, we call it rock, we call it progressive. Um, there's certainly some funk elements and at the end of, is it time? Or um, no, was it Nick Mason's drum beat you said in time? Yeah, I think time. Nick Mason's drum beat Very is funky. quite funky. Yeah. Also, any quality you like is quite funky. Yeah. Uh, well, after money comes the track Us and Them. Um, which was the first track of the, I think that, that was actually the first track they recorded of the album and it shows Gilmore and Wright's vocals yeah. um, they use it so well and there was a massive emphasis on the echo and reverb applied to their vocals because you hear it I mean it's so obvious isn't it it's us us us, us. again and then 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 just so precise. Just like the samples they use in, in other songs, yeah. including this one, the technology plays a really important place, there, yeah. uh, a very important uh, role in that song because uh, you could just say us and then feel bars of silence. Yeah. And then. But that echo makes it. That echo to totally like makes the song what it is mm. and makes people think about, oh, is he actually repeating the line? Oh, is that an effect? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's an effect. First time I've heard that, I was like, is he just singing the line over and over? No, it doesn't sound like it so, sounds so perfect. Yeah. Oh, it's just like uh, repeated by, by the machine, yeah. not by the, the man. And that's got a saxophone thing in, doesn't it? It does awesome. have a saxophone. It's really Dick lovely. Perry, isn't it? Is it? Dick Perry is the same guy who recorded Wish We Were Here With Him. Um, oh, cool. Um, I think, yeah, it's him. I think it's him. Cool. He was a, a jazz musician who was friends with David Gilmour, and um, he did. they didn't know too many session guys to invite. So he was mm -hmm. his mate. It's like, well, I'm going to call this guy. Yeah. He came down, did a fantastic... Nailed it, yeah, yeah exactly. It's it. lovely. Great song. Um, talking about funk as well, the next tune, Any Colour You Like. Very funky, isn't it, towards the end of the song? It is, and uh, that is a kind of a transition song, isn't it? It yeah. comes from uh, um, Us and Them, which is a ballad somehow. Us yeah. and Them is very, like, uh, melodic, very emotional, and there's reference to the war and all that stuff. And it, it, it comes from that thing into the last section of the album, mm -hmm. isn't it? It goes into brain damage and... Eclipse. And the transition's seamless, isn't it? It's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's just like, wow, that song. So some people listen to that song and say, yeah, there's nothing great about it. Well, there is one important thing. It's a connection. It's a transition. It's the bridge between the whole album 
and the last chapter. Yeah. Because Brain Damage and Eclipse, you can talk about them as just one song. Exactly, yeah. Excellent. So, as we said, any colour you like flows seamlessly into Brain Damage and Eclipse. And Eclipse really does just feel like the finale of the album, doesn't it? It's so... Even down to things like the repeating of the lyrics. All that you done, all that you done, all that you do. And all yeah. that you do, yeah, it is. That, you yeah. Know, it's, it's fantastic, but it really—it's it's almost musical, as in um, not musical, as in a musical, like musical yeah. theatre stuff. You can kind of imagine the ensemble of a musical theatre piece singing this all together at the end. And and Watcher's vocals uh, on that song are closer to spoken word, isn't it? Instead yeah, of, yeah, instead, true. instead of actually singing. And there was an, an interesting thing about him singing in the album. Again, that's why. The album is a band effort. Waters wrote all the lyrics and all the melodies, but they wouldn't let him sing. Oh, really? They didn't he like. Well, he, he could sing, but he wasn't. Let's be fair. He didn't have that beautiful voice that that Wright and and yeah. and, and, and Gilmore had. So, um, but I I do think his voice is just amazing because it's it's different from everyone else's voice. When you listen to Gilmore and and Wright. It's they blend, you know. Yeah. Like, they they sound like the same guy singing. It's true, yeah. Whilst Waters is completely different. And he unique. sang a lot more on the wall, didn't he? You know, is he, that he true? Did sing pretty much. Yeah. I really, well, he sang everything. Yeah, really. well, everything. There's loads of Gilmore there, but yeah. uh, but he he kind of you know took over in terms of uh, being the, the the lead vocalist as well. But at that point in time, they would say to him, "Listen, you're the songwriter. We are the singers." Yeah. So the whole album, the whole album to that point, apart from some backing vocals, the whole album is Gilmore and Richard Wright singing. Mm. When you get to the end of it, Water said, no way you guys are going to sing this, because this <laughs> is my piece, and this is me, has to have my voice. Well, if, if he does doesn't the lyrics, make, yeah. Doesn't it make darker? Right at the end, you have his low-tone voice. Yeah, and I think it's fair. It's always fair to him that this was his album, lyrically. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't he get to say the most important part of the album, which is the final, the final few lines? Um, this, I mean, brain damage. Is brain damage is probably my favourite tune on the album, um, not least because it has the. It has the Dark Side of the Moon lyric on Yeah. And if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, see you on the Dark Side of the Moon. Just, oh, it's just uh, stunning. I love it. Just I mean, how to put the name of the album there? It's <laughs> yeah. like, like in movies when they yeah. say the name. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's the that, that's all the tracks, really. But Now, then we run through all the tracks. Do we have um, time for some segments? Oh, we do. Have Go we? for oh, it. That's how we do it. Laz Unleashed. Do we have a Laz Unleashed for today? We do. Ooh, so see, I don't have the script. I never have it. He's so just I'm holding the iPad to, yeah, to try and see. I'm trying to read it now. But yeah, no, I'm not, we've I'm got not go on, introduce it formally. So, ladies and gentlemen, Laz Unleashed. Right, so on this, uh, on this week's segment of Laz Unleashed, I'm going to say something that this actually probably is the most controversial thing you'd, you'd, uh, you, you'll hear me say. Disclaimer. Go for it. Felipe does, does not necessarily agree with yeah. Lazarus controversial opinions. And I, I want to say it again. I do not agree with whatever Laz is going to say now. Whatever it is. And I say this with my head in my hands because I love it. I love the album. It's honestly one of my favorite albums of all times. More than that, it's one of the best albums of all times, of all time. But 
I'm going to cover my eyes because I don't want to see Felipe's reaction. I don't think money has a place on this album. There we go. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking at him because um, I don't want to um, see. I'll tell I'm you why. so sad to say that's the last episode of the show because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to quit that. I feel um, as great as the song is and as, as, as much as it works as a single and as the ex- most accessible song, I feel like it's... i tell you what it feels like. It feels like the intermission of a play. It feels like I've gone straight from Speak To Me. Uh, what, do, what comes before money? Um, I, so I go from Speak To Me to Great Gig In The Sky. And those 18 minutes are just one fantastic, seamless journey going into each other. Then you break with money. And again, great song, but it just really takes me out of the mood. And then I cut, it brings back in with us and God, them. It's and so hard to please Mr. Lars Michael. Yeah, well, that's the point of this segment, isn't it's it? It's like, no, he always has something to, to, to say about it. Like, it's a classic, dude. Yeah, it is. No, I it understand. money. It just, it just it, for me... You can't have Dark Side of the Moon without money. That's yeah, it. I've no, said it. And that's a fair thing to say. It just, every time I listen to it, my... It's almost like I could... I, I, if I listen to Dark Side of the Moon, I put my headphones on, and the one time that I might open my eyes, check what time it is, is when money comes on. That, it takes me out of the atmospheric. I'm not, no, listen, I'm not saying I skip the song. I don't. It's part of the journey. If you skip the song, I'm not going to talk to you again. Do you know, <laughs> no, if, I don't. If, if you take Lars to the Louvre Museum, he's going to look at the Mona Lisa and say, yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? But I don't think it has a place in this museum. <laughs> Just say, you know, you just break the transition between that thing and the other thing, you know. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic song. It really is. Uh, I just question... <sighs> Do you understand any any part of what I'm saying in I'm terms sure of the someone, atmospheric? I'm sure someone is going to agree with no, but you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not agree, but do you hear what I'm saying in the sense of the the vibe, the tone, the the attitude of the album from the start? I don't hear what you're saying. I don't <laughs> from, hear from, what, you know I what I mean? From I the start to where money begins. Do you not feel that that in itself is a journey? Then from the end of money to the end of Eclipse is another journey, and money kind of breaks it up. Um, in a simple, poetic way, I'd say, no, I don't feel it. Fair enough. Well, that concludes another another week segment of Laz Unleashed, and thank you for, yeah. for tolerating that was, that was That was hard to convince, man. <laughs> I mean, if you agree with Laz, drop, drop your comment. Uh, if this, if you're watching this on YouTube or if, or if you're just listening to the podcast somewhere, just or send us an email or a letter uh, <laughs> or give us a call. You know, oh, any other complaint. Calls. Yeah, a complaint. Yeah. Now, if um, you agree with us, send us your love because I think he's going to need that because there's going to be so much hate. <laughs> just saying. Well, anyway. um, so yeah, we, I mean, we've, we've talked about the album now. I think this is a good place to start bringing things together. Um, but just talk about the success and the legacy of the album. I mean, it is one of, if not the most famous album of all time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know everyone who's listened to it. Sorry, I'm not saying everyone has listened to it, but everyone knows Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Everyone knows the album cover. Yeah. Everyone knows like uh, one song from the album. It's universal. It is a masterpiece, and it's commercial and it's rock. Yeah. And it has all the technology, all the musicianship, all I mean, all it takes 
to make a classic, whether you like the band or not. Yeah. Well, in 2013, it was selected um, by the US National Recording Registry. Uh, and what it, it, so it's selected for preservation. So I don't know how you do that, but you preserve this album. Um, and the reason for it being selected by the Library of Congress is it said that Dark Side of the Moon is culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant to music history. I think no one can argue with that. No, I agree. Uh, it, it, again, it's not about being your favorite band or your favorite music yeah. style. The relevance of the album is simply uh, um, evident. It is simply, you know, you can't question that. That's what I'm no, saying. No, yeah. You can't question. And just talking about some rankings as well, I'll just read through these quickly. So, Rolling Stone, name it number 43 in the 500 greatest albums of all time. Rolling Stone, name it number one in the top prog rock albums of all time. The same for Q. Um, NME, call it the eighth best album of all time. Uh, the Observer, call it the 29th best album that changed music, which I think that's important because, like we yeah. said before, the, techno the technological innovations in this album were so, they were so ahead of their time. Yeah. It was so um, it still sounds It yeah. still sounds modern, I think, up to this day. So. Yeah. Now I have a question for you to kind of end the show because uh, I'm, I'm getting kind of inspired by this at the end. Um, how do you define the dark side of the moon in one short phrase or one um, um, statement? Uh, it is an experience. It's not an album. It's, it's not an album that I can just, okay, I want to listen to time today. Today I'm going to put on, you know, on my drive, on my five minute drive to Tesco, I'm going to put on us and them. When I was doing the notes and when I was talking about each of the tracks, I just had each track on and I went and thought, okay, you know, funky this song or the synthesizer on this song. And I didn't enjoy the album as much because I played a song, I made some notes and I skipped it. And then when you get to brain damage, you're like, I haven't earned this. Yeah. I haven't earned the right to listen to Eclipse. No, you need to go it's through... It's the full experience. Again, like a movie, isn't it? Absolutely. You're watching the scenes. You need and, to know what happened in yeah, the previous scene. And any time I do it, any time I listen to Dark Side of the Moon, I turn all the lights off. I put one of my speakers in front of my left, uh, to my left and one on my right. And I'll sit down, I'll put a pillow. Sometimes I do it in the living room and my wife's kind of, she comes down, she says, what are you doing? Um, just and, listening yeah. to some Floyd And thing. I just turn, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I just turn the lights off and I hit play and you just don't let it. And do you know what? This is, goes against my comment about money because you're right, money is a part of it. You can't skip it. No, no so, I, I never do. All I was saying is in terms of style, it kind of, for me, doesn't, doesn't fully fit. But anyway, uh, it is an experience. It is a, it is a, it is a movie. Yeah, it's, it yeah, it's a, a whole movie. story. You've got to follow each yeah. chapter of it. Um, I have a funny story about that. I say about the experience. I was just listening to some Floyd. A um, friend of mine um, who I used to play with back in the day, you know, around 1978, I guess. And <laughs> she said that her boyfriend once disappeared for a month. Well, didn't disappear. He locked himself in the room. He wouldn't leave. And his mum was concerned and whatever. And one day they said, can you just open the door? You know, we need to, you know, what's going on with you? You've been there for days. And, he was, and they opened the door and he was surrounded by all his Pink Floyd collection. He said, I was just listening to some Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing with this kind of music. It, it can take you out of life. <laughs> yeah. It transports you to another kind of dynamic in your it world. Does. 
No, um, I, I think I want to say uh, what I, how I would yeah, describe the dark side of the moon. It's the perfect music combination between man and machine. That's really cool. Because as That's we talked, really cool as we, yeah. as we talked through the technological elements of the album that sound very modern nowadays, imagine at the time, mm. in the 70s. So they did allow the machines to play an important role. Most rock musicians would be like, no, it's all about me, the way I play it. You know, the gear is not that important. Yeah. They were like, no, no, no. Let the gear speak. We're, we're gonna for let, yeah, we're gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna act all rock and roll and say we don't want to use all these technologies. They're gonna let they're, they're gonna embrace these new technologies that were available. Yeah. And like I said, Pink Floyd were demonstrating the technology the technologies of the future. It's an amazing album, isn't it? I, it's I it's a to, clear ten out of ten. Like there's no there's no debate. I said eleven out of ten. Yeah, I, mean, exactly. I want to listen to it right now. Yeah. Are you sure guys going to listen yeah. to the Dark Side of the Moon? Well, now, it will be in the playlist. So you know, go down to the end episode notes to get our playlist, and it will talk. It'll have uh, the Dark Side of the Moon album on, and then any other songs we've made. You know, we mentioned Echoes, so that will go in. Um, anyway, guys, that rounds us off nicely for uh, another another episode of Long Live Rock and Roll. So please. Um, Please give us a follow on social media. Uh, we are at Long Live RNR Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can search Long Live Rock and Roll Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Please, you know, in comments below, give us suggestions. You know, if you want us to talk about an album or a specific band, let us know. Send us a message and, uh, and we'll see what we can do. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us today. And let us know if you'd like to listen to us when you're driving or when you're cooking or when you're doing nothing else, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Why would people listen to us yeah. and when? <laughs> no one to know. Uh, so, yeah, um, thanks a lot for being with us again and keep on rocking, everyone. And as always, long live rock and roll.